1: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I recently sat down in a New York studio with George Clinton, who is, of course, the founder of Parliament and a funkadelic, and one of the most important figures in 20th century music, I think it's safe to say. We talked just before his 80th birthday, which just passed, and he discussed his entire historic career and explained why it's not over yet. Let's get straight to that interview. Sir Clinton, thank you so much for being here.
2: Good to be here,
1: glad to be out. Yeah, we were saying, like, if you're back on the road, the world must be returning to what it should be.
2: Well, that's good evidence that it's all right, because our show wasn't coming out till it got right. And I got my shots, the band is ready, everybody got their shots, and we just met up last night. So yeah, you can, that's pretty good evidence that it's all right. <laughs>
1: You were going to say farewell and in, in two thousand and nineteen, you had a farewell tour. Is this technically still part of the farewell tour?
2: Technically it is. They didn't give us a chance to get off. We was almost there, you know, right at the end of the last one nation tour. it was just about at the end of it, and the pandemic shut us down. so it gave me a chance to get some rest. You know, and get prepared to re- really do it right. So now people know I got, I'm gonna finish this next year off and I'll be out then. But I'm, right now I got the kids are ready to go. They've been practicing for this for like three years
1: and it was going great. And 2022, is that farewell or, or are you, it's okay to pull back on the farewell. We don't want you to say goodbye. Yeah, I ain't,
2: gonna, I ain't gonna, I'm gonna pull back from that. Okay. I'm pulling back from, you know, right now because it's, that gave me some rest, and um, I feel good. You know, got all my blood work done with the doctors and all that, and I ain't got no problem, no meds. So I'm, I'm feeling good. So it's not goodbye. It's hello again. you 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 hello a... again. I mean, really. That's great. You have to drag me off now.
1: <laughs> I asked guys from the Beatles and the Stones, would they actually want to uh, pass away on
2: stage? <laughs> <And> <laughs> I wouldn't give a. <laughs> You know, this is—I'll be eighty in two in two months, so—and I feel good as hell right now. So, if I go out on stage, yeah, cool. <laughs> yeah, fuck it. <laughs> he went out funkin'.
1: <laughs> you know what? We could all do worse than those uh, those words, I guess. Oh, I'm trying. I'm telling you, we can definitely do worse than going out funkin'.
2: That's easy.
1: Tell me about how you spent the the pandemic and what that was like for you
2: you know i was lucky when we shut down for the pandemic. you know it was, it was tired first of all but we were because we had just worked real hard to get the new show on the road and we was rehearsing for, and getting all that together and when the pandemic thing happened we were able to shut down and stop for a minute and i really didn't have to worry about because i had another habit that i was really into And that was painting. Really? Oh, yeah, I did a lot of painting and artsy-fartsy stuff and got carried away with it, and it got good to me. I got an art manager and me doing these NFT things, and it's getting really deep. I just have one question about your painting, though. Aren't you colorblind? Oh, yeah, I'm colorblind. That's what (laughs) what makes it even funnier, because I don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) And and everybody seemed to, like, kind of, you know, like, like it. And it reminded me of, you know, when we actually started going into funk music as opposed to doo-wop, we was ad-libbing. We was ad-libbing, jamming and grooving, and it became our thing that became our calling, the funk became our calling. So the art feels the same way, cause I didn't know what I was doing, but then when this pandemic happened, I saw another thing I could actually spend my time, you know, I don't do drugs no more, so I have a lot of time off with no, you know, work on the road, so I got down, got canvases, spent all kind of money on canvases, and, and we got a load of stuff for, the, and they call it the pandemic series. Wow. And it actually worked out really good.
1: I mean, you said that you were so colorblind that when you look at some of the classic Parliament and Funkadelic album covers, you couldn't really even see what was going on because they were so color dependent.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, I have to like really look closer to see what the shades are at. And having, doing that and then paint myself, I started getting familiar with the tones, values, and I started seeing colors that way because I got into abstract and shapes and tones and Values and it feels good, and actually got what they call a lexicon. You can see the, you know the handwriting. You know I did it. That's amazing. Yeah.
1: Did you get to recording any music, writing new music? Oh, I did.
2: Did a lot of music. We did a couple albums that we waiting to put out. We're gonna do those verses. I don't know the exact date, sometime in August. Right. George Clinton and P Funk All Stars versus Parliament Funkadelic.
1: That's kind of cheating, isn't it? Not really, because we we're using all of the
2: this people that sample P-Funk. They're going to be part of P-Funk All-Stars. Got it. You know, so it'll be George Clinton and everybody that sampled us against the uh, Parliament Funkadelic together. It'll be fun, because they did their version of what we was doing as uh, the clones. Does it ever bug you that for a
1: whole generation who hears Atomic Dog, they heard the Snoop song first, and it it messes with their perception of it a little bit.
2: No, it, make, it makes make me feel proud, you know, because it's part of the plan. It's doing what we—that's the only way you're gonna stay around, you know. You can't come back it's the same. Your kids ain't gonna like that. you, you two old get the, get out of here, you know. So that was a good excuse to stay around. They got their version of Atomic Dog, and the next—it's been two generations since we did it. That is now it's actually out long enough for somebody to re record the whole thing. I did the whole thing for Trolls in, in uh, right. Disney with Anderson Pack and um you know the other people in there. That made it a brand new song. So when
1: you first heard it being a Snoop Doggy Dog, Snoop, doggy
2: dog. I did that with him. Yeah. I yeah. was there right when you know I did my own parts with when Dre was doing Snoop and and um Pac and all of that. I was in the studio, those weren't samples most of the time. I actually went in and did the live versions of it. So I knew the plan with the the LA, you know, G-Funk. G Drayton and them used to have a club called uh, Uncle Jam's Army. That was the club, that was our name of our album. They asked us for the use to name Uncle Jam's Army. So that was before NWA. So I watched them act. I didn't believe in it at first. I didn't think it You know, I also used to New York. Hardcore rap. That I didn't think that that was going to be all it was. But they, they really pulled it off. You know, the straight out of Compton whole G-Funk thing still is here. Snoop is Uncle Snoop now. You know, back then I was Uncle this, uh, uh, Daddy that. Now that whole generation is Uncle. You know, so... I watched them, you know, just grow into their thing. The same way I watched New York, you know, earlier, early 80s, you know, Africa Bimbada, if you know, on Uncle Jam's Army, we got the fan names on the back of the album. Africa Bimbada's name is the first one on there, you know, because that was in New York. And I watched that whole Bronx, Brooklyn thing develop, and it worked so thoroughly. I was glad I did get along with hip hop because my fear was that the song was going to be on tv you know those k-tail packages where you see all your songs on there you don't get nothing from that but at least the sample stuff you had a chance to put some interpretation on who gets paid for it right they just not getting around to figuring that out (laughs) you know and i'm still here and i'm glad i took the long way around
1: I've said this to you before, but I mean, the, one of the things that's so amazing about your career and the fact that you're still here is that you, you're a walking museum of this, of the entire history of a whole strand of American music. I mean, you you can yeah. go from from doo wop to Kendrick Lamar and beyond, and that that's your story.
2: I mean, I, I, I prided that a long time ago, coming out of you know New York Brill Building work around the corner here, being a part of that whole. 56, 7, 8, we started in 56 and started coming over here trying to get a record after Frankie Lyman and Teenagers and all the New York groups, Harlem and Brooklyn and all those groups. We watched it do our thing. And just being a part of rock and roll as it came in, I worked in a record store at Fort 15, and, you know, it was Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis it was my favorite of that whole... Click of, you know, that kind of music. Jerry Lewis was it. I watched all of that go into 59 Motown show up. And that was it. I knew I was going to be a part of rock and roll history, doo-wop history. And I made the plans from then. And because Motown was, it was it. I worked right in Joe Bet, right in the Brill Building here. And that to me was a story that I, I maintained all, even though we changed the funk, you know, like we played with the Vanilla Fudge in Connecticut, which we just played the other night, and we used their instruments. So we heard what rock and roll, I mean, what R&B sound like over Marshall Lamb. Once we heard that, we knew, okay, this is what Jimi Hendrix is doing. This is what, how they get that. And we became loud doo-wop singers, loud Motown singers. That became what we call funkadelic you know and we just mixed the two of them and that became our new thing i kept my eyes on whenever the music changed i learned to like the people that was getting ready to put us out the kids who was getting on your nerve with the new version we came along with that kind of thing it didn't bother me when i heard same thing kids always bring the new version of the absurdity into rock and roll. Rock and roll was that when it first came out. And every time I hear a new version of that, it gets on your nerve at first, but then when you let go of that, you're able to, oh, this is it. If I hurry up and get on it, I ain't gonna seem like I'm so old.
1: Now, obviously, Testify was a big breakthrough. Yeah, and there's two versions. people don't realize that there's the single version, and then there's the version re- you re-recorded. yes yeah. and that's more like what you wanted it to be in the first but, time. Yes, but but how how did
2: that song come together? The first the first version of it, everybody was on this um, this Bob Dylan kick. You know the Four Tops. You know, Reach Out for Me and Bernadette and Standing in the chat. All of that. Oh, today, today, today. today. Everybody was doing that. Mick Jagger was doing it. So when we did Friends Inquisitive Friends Are uh, asking me "What come over Friends Inquisitive
1: Friends Are asking me
0: what?
2: come over I was doing my interpretation of Bob Dylan. You know, but, but not No Town, but in between
1: that... I it, have to admit, until I saw that you said that those songs like Bernadette were influenced by Bob Dylan, that
2: never occurred to me, never. Oh, that was everybody... That was one thing Motown was always up on. Whatever new was happening, they got their versions of this song. They had a bunch of songwriters who could... <laughs> same as Bar- the Brill Building. Yeah. They write a song for you in a minute.
1: You did your version of that. And I did
2: my yeah. version. Testify was my version of, you know, that era. You know, and... Um, like I said, that straight atonal, friends and friends are uh, asking me what, come over me. You know, once you hear me say it, then all of a sudden, what I really do? Reach out for me Was say, I am on a run, but I have no place to go. Levi was really singing it. Yeah. But he had Bob Dylan. I mean, Holland Doge Holland. It was them. Yeah. They knew what they were doing. That was... The real version. I mean, Bob Dylan wrote some jams, the best songs. He was a folk singer, so he didn't put all that emphasis on vocal tone. It was a story. They came along with the story and his magic of that tone. Mm. And what revelations did you take from the arrival of Jimi Hendrix? Because he was very important to the funk. That's that's what made him make that move. Because see, I know Jimmy is Jimmy James in the Flames. Right. I know King Curtis. You know when he played it, and we used to if the dude with no shoes on with a tuck, you know, and so he was freaky even though he didn't know what freaky was, he always stood out like that, you know, when he was with those guys. We had a manager, Kit
1: Lambert, right? It was the who? Kit Lambert yeah.
2: had track records. We were on the same label with him. Some of the they called it Northern Soul. Right. They had a, a, a you know. I guess store making bootleg records or whatever they was doing. But we did some of those with them. And I realized, this is Jimmy Jane. What? And when I saw his hair, like, what the hell happened? But then I saw the, the magic that he he did when they did those first things and what uh, Pete Townsend, Eric Clapton, what they was all saying about who is this dude. I understood what it was. It was the same blues guys that I used to see in the club that played with their team, play behind their back. But loud as hell, and he had it to the degree of Miles Davis, you know, with jazz, he could play with it that that radically, and the band that he had together that had to be that had to come from some places they wouldn't have done that if they knew what they were doing, <laughs> my opinion, they probably wouldn't have never got together, you know, but once that happened, that magic of of them three and to me that was the premier version of the Jimmy. A lot of people like the second version, you know, but that to me was, are you experienced? Are you really experienced? They meant that shit. Because <laughs> you had to get versed in that. Matter of fact, when it came out, I bought Electric Ladyland, Are You Experienced? And Act uh, As Love. Yeah. Love. Bought all three of them at the same time. Colony Records right around the corner. There were at least two other key influences. One, of course,
1: was someone who would later become your friend, uh, Sly Stone. Before he became part of your life, which is a whole other story, what was his impact on you when you heard him and the family Stone at
2: that point? I first heard of him with Dave Kaplick. That was his first, I mean, his managers that I knew him and his sister. He was the president at Columbia Records. And we were also over there talking to him because one of our friends, Ernie Harris, was managed by Dave Kaplick too. So he said, I'm gonna show you somebody. I mean you can make a record that's good. You know, we had did music for my mother and Free your mind, your ass was following. We was, you know, hot with the psychedelic thing. Sly was on his way pop and Dave Dave was saying, This is what you got to look like, you know, because we were dark. <laughs> you know, Sly was bright and you know to me that was the step between Motown and Jimi Hendrix. We tried to go where Jimmy was at and on out, you know. But David was saying, this is what you get, Sly. He played that Sly's record. It was the same, I felt the same way Prince later on told me he felt when he got the Warners and heard Bootsy's first record. I knew we had to go back in the studio and actually do some other stuff. And that, you know, one night a year or two later, Bootsy came with us, gave us the opportunity to get the horns. And so that became the up-for-the-downs of P-Funk mothership and all that.
1: And I think it's fair to say another influence was the LSD itself.
2: Oh, uh, hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I fought against even thinking that I wanted to say that because a lot of people say, you know, it give you inspiration. It took me a long time to wait, wait a minute. I would have never done none of that shit. You know, if I didn't have that whole freedom of, you know, being into Boston, we went to Boston and hung out with the kids, and everybody was happy, love and peace. That was bullshit, you know. For what we reason, you have to watch your back. But everybody seemed to believe that. And once Woodstock happened, to me it ended the war. The whole that was the whole thing of it. To me, the whole thing ended with Woodstock too. At the same time, the LSD got us into that whole thing. Got us out of it too, because soon they start talking about buying it, su- selling it. To me, I got the instincts of the streets. If it's are selling and somebody's doing it to make money, I'm scared. you know. But And that was right, because it ended after that. You know, started getting bad reports, people didn't like long hair, and da-da-da-da. It was the whole thing changed. But it served its purpose of ending that war, and all of freedoms, women's rights, black rights, gay rights, and all of that happened during that period for a minute. Now we're back here again, got to do it again, but... LSD, later on, I realized, oh, my God, a lot of that stuff that I got out of that, I'm still glad I do believe it, do the best you can, and funk it, you know. And those kind of things come from that, free your mind, your ass will fall. I didn't know what the fuck I was saying. <laughs> you know, to me, I'm just saying it, you know, because it sounds deep. But after a while, people started writing about it, and then, and my boy, Ernie Harris, who worked in the shop with me, say, no, you being channeled, shit coming through you, blah, blah, blah. I ain't dealing with none of that. One thing that
1: is hard for me to conceptualize is you don't really play an instrument, right? I mean it's a
2: No, so, they they call it head sessions.
1: Yeah. But you've been writing songs since the fifties and, and in
2: and and not just for yourself, you were so how did that how did that well, work? At first you sung the parts. Yeah. In the fifties you actually sung the bass parts. That was part of the background and the tenors and the the guitars. The vocals did everything. Right. So by the time they started making grooves for it you pretty much knew what was going on, and like I said, then at the Brill Building, you you had you, you had the Phil Spector's, the Carol Kings, and the Don Kirshners. You had all the variations of rock and roll that was coming out of New York and Philly. You know, you had all that to like, wow! I, I got a little bit of this inf- information. Get to Motown, bam! They do that shit almost like jazz, yeah. but it's a dance. You know, it was dance music. I paid attention to all of that and the best musicians were studio musicians anyway. So I got, I remember how I did head sessions. It was easy with my little kid brother, I mean, you know, Billy and Eddie, they were kids. So I could actually, whoa, hey, I could tell them the parts and they wouldn't tell me, shut up. Years later, they did. I was like, well, you don't play no instruments. (laughs) (laughs) But how does that work with like chord changes and stuff? You know what I mean? Like how would you? It's the same thing, it's the same thing. You know, we sung the parts. And once you you know the chord changes that you like and you feel, everybody had different styles. All rock and roll was three-chord blues, basically, anyway. You know, and it started getting slick, you know, like when we got, went out on the road first time, we tried to sing Seven Rooms of Gloom by the Four Tops.
1: Yeah. I need you, darling,
2: desperately. We didn't realize you have to have... a sheet music for that your average band can't play that from the ear we got to the parlor and effed up worse than we had ever in our life because we didn't have our band and we was trying to sing a song and we thought the band could ad-lib it no you can't add to them kind of chords yeah you know and so you learn pretty much how to do it on the I, matter of fact i could do it on the fly now better than i can in the studio because it you get in that zone and shit just come to you. You ain't got to get deep or think about it. It just and it ain't no real logic to the stuff they say nowadays. You can just say words nowadays. That's the style. If you listen to the rhymes and things that hip hop music now, it's like they have a whole new thing. That bump that ain't deep no more. They got a whole nother mumble vibe going. That's pretty soon they're gonna be some classical records mumbling, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: once you said a, a, a key thing was learning to keep an audience
2: captivated even with a slow tempo yeah oh we got we got that again from the Vanilla Fudge really yeah they 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 did get set me free why don't you babe set me free why don't you babe get by brother. that long vibrato that was the Supreme Songs. They uh, did like a heavy, slow version of that? Heavy, slow yeah. version with that Marshall Amps and shit. Shadow yeah. Morton did it, you know. And so it was really out there. But he did that one. They did, um, people get ready. There's a really slow, and they mastered that slow tempo. Otis Redding did it. He mastered being able to do it something slow and keep your attention. That's the hardest thing in the world to do. Because the dynamics got to be, you know, all the time. You can't let up. We started doing that, in the Bernie always thought it was too dark, you know, but it was bluesy. And I saw all the stuff that rock and roll bands were getting away with almost being bluesy. Now, we're going to do this, and we did it. To me, you do it with confidence. Anything you do with confidence, people think you mean it, it's all right, long no, as you don't lose faith in it. And once they get into it, you get in that threshold of in the zone, then it's like, it's more than doing it fast, because everybody can get up there, play at the highest energy, and you peak. But do that slow, you really got something going. When did you start thinking of funk as a genre, as like the genre you were working in? After Testify, after Testify, and like I said, seeing um, Jimi Hendrix, Cream, they did rock and roll and blues like my mother, to me, the only genre that wasn't taken was that New Orleans version of R&B. Get out of my life, woman. <laughs> get out my life, woman. You don't love me no more. They were really the funky, funky, funky. And to me, we could actually get away with that version of it. Because if you know, the Neville brothers came out around the same time. All that stuff was pop. Most it was r for a minute, you know, it went through the clubs, but Aaron Neville's and all, those songs are pop. And so I realized, okay, we'll do this version of it. You know, whoa, oh, hey. Everybody was saying, what the hell are you talking about, what you're saying? It was a groove. And that's the whole theme of Funkadelic. So it was immediately after testified and trying to get a couple of follow-ups and I realized it's hard as hell to get a, a 45 If you get three in a row, you're lucky. You know what I'm saying? And by the fourth, then you're too old, usually, to try to do it. Blues, R&B, and that stuff, they was 50 and 60-year-old people still doing that. I looked at B.B. King when he turned 50, and I was like, I ain't in no hurry. You (laughs) know what I'm saying? To me, it gave you time, you know. Did any of the New Orleans guys ever
1: comment on the fact that, that you were, I mean, because you had no connection in New Orleans whatsoever. Not then,
2: <laughs> but years later, yeah. we became really tight with yeah. the family. the Neville Brothers, uh, grandkids, kids, and all of them, you know, Alan Toussaint, you know, over the years, because they compared us, you know, the good old music, uh, Mama What's the Funkadelic." they compared that with Sissy Strutt, because it was, it was a track for a group to sing on, and the group wasn't there. It was just a band track. And that became a sound, you know, and we started being proud of it. You know, once you feel proud of it, then you ain't, you know, because otherwise funk would have been for old folks if we didn't do it the way we did it, you know. And then we started doing the costumes once I went to Canada. And so that, oh, if you make it look like church, you know, but not church, you know, wear diapers somebody else got a robe on.
1: There's a little bit of Mardi Gras in that too.
2: I never thought of that. We didn't know it on... And then on purpose, we didn't do it on purpose, like. Yeah. But years later, we was able to use that as the, you know, a carnival, you know, and, and but especially when Mothership came, it was time to go back to being bright, like slide. It was definitely modge Ground then because it was a spaceship. We had leather suits on that cost ten times more than anything that anybody else was wearing. So it was totally the opposite from a diaper, <laughs> you know, in a sheet. They're yeah. making a movie about Neil Bogart. Yeah, his, and, his uh, sons.
1: And yeah, and Wiz Khalifa apparently is going to play you. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for him? And do you, how do
2: you feel about that casting? Well, you know, my uh, grandkids and great grandkids are, are in the movie. They had a band with him, with Wiz Khalifa. Perfect. Yeah, they're playing. They're playing their parts with him. From what they said, they they say he was on it. They're probably doing a quick version of it. They're not emphasizing. No one, but they emphasize basically Neil. Right, it's about Neil, it's not yeah, about, it's about you, about it's, Neil. Not about See, it, it's not about kiss, it's not about, yeah. When you know Neil, you know Neil go all the way back to Buddha or Neil Scott. See, I know his whole history from working with him and Cecil Holmes right here when he was Buddha. So he have a whole lot of story to tell. We was just one of a whole bunch of groups that he, he
1: made big. <laughs> I love that he would uh, that he would ship gold and return platinum. They say. that's yeah. the most famous thing. Everybody yeah.
2: Ship gold and it, it return platinum.
1: Now, when you started Funkadelic, part of the thing was that the Parliament's name was tied up. You couldn't
2: use it. It was it just was, for a minute. We were
1: actually. So was it always the plan that I'm gonna
2: you know I'm gonna yeah. provide or, or just kind of work oh, out? No, it was there. always the plan. You know because Smokey was my idol. You know, and I wanted to write songs for other people. You know, we had a couple of records out, Roy Handy Tamla Lewis, you know, the Northern Soul stuff. Right. We got this real big on the first records I did before any of this. So I really wanted to do that anyway. And when I realized that this psychedelic thing that we're doing, the record company I was with, didn't know nothing about, it. they would not go hear none of that. You know, and after we did good old music. <laughs> Good Old Music was the last Parliament record, but that was the beginning of the sound of Funkadelic. The next record we came out with was Funkadelic. you know, with that sound. And um, we knew we had to change then, and we didn't know where the owner of the company was at, so we, we didn't know what we could do with Parliament name. It wasn't told we couldn't use it. We just assumed that we didn't want to get in and know trouble with it. Funkadelic was the image that was happening all of a sudden. So we went, ran with it. And it didn't take about six months, and we got to deal with Holland Doge Holland, you know, and that, we put an album out, Osmian, with them. And then, you know, I think it's unique in the entire history of the
1: music business, because you had these two things going at once, and you had this idea that every... Funkadelic album had a twin in a, in a Parliament record and vice versa. Yeah. And I, I don't think there's anyone else did anything like that. Oh,
2: it, it ended up being three of a Bootsy, too, after a while. Right. All the, the, the mothership and the clones and the children of production, all that started including Bootsy, the Horny Horns, Eddie Hazel, Burning World Rel, everybody was the deal. The object was to get everybody their own deal, you know, with different labels. Somebody would always be... Hitting and Roger, we actually did more Bounce In The Ounce. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. And we had Roger on our own label. And when he didn't, you know, sign up with us after we did more Bounce In The Ounce, Zap, we made up the name for his younger brother. Gave his brother the name, well, is his name, but we used him as opposed to Roger's name because Roger was going to sign with us on Uncle Jam. We got a hit on Zap. And he didn't want to be Zapp at first, but it was so big, he had to end up being Zapp. And then he took the rest of it to, it. our idea was to have one on CBS and the other one on Warner Brothers and have them fighting against each other keep Parliament Funkadelic. But he didn't know what we was doing for it, you know, yet. When did you realize that Bootsy was
1: Bootsy, that it was gonna be a whole thing of its own?
2: Soon as he got what was on the road. You know, you could see people looking around who was singing here, trying to see who that is in the back, you know, because he had the funkadelic image, but it was a Bootsy version of it. It was another thing. It was Jimi Hendrix, but not bubblegum, but pop. You know, you know, Kitty, you know, and that's what we realized we could actually get away with silly love songs with him, which was what Parliament wanted to do. You know, a lot of his songs would have been on Parliament. Right. Younger people sometimes don't understand that they were very
1: separate ideas, that Parliament was supposed to be the kind of the sweeter, more accessible, tighter version. Yeah, of was out there. And could, yeah. We could
2: get away with anything is that. But then when Bootsy came, is another really cutesy, but Jimi Henrik's overtone. We were using Jimmy's vibe, because that's bigger than life, and Bootsy had that bigger than life, till we... I'm not second, but the next record was Bootzilla. I told him, don't try to live up to... When I was writing a song, I knew this was going to be one of them songs that you're talking about yourself. I'm the rhinestone rock star, monster of a dog, baby baba. you promoting yourself, and he's not like that. He didn't, he didn't want to... He thought that was too egotistical. I said, look, I'm doing... I'm Dr. Funkenstein, We love you, Dr. Funkinstein. I said, you just can't believe it. <laughs> you can say it, but as soon as you start believing it, run. That's the, that's the idea when you do that. You've now been sober for, for quite a while, at least from... You know, you know what? I actually get higher than I did before, you know, because I smoke weed now. Right. <laughs> and weed is ten times... You get ten times higher than trying to get high with any of that cracked it. Crack is the... You chasing it is high. trying to find it is what get you messed up. Right, you're
1: trying to you're trying to chase that high from the beginning. Yeah,
2: you yeah. ain't gonna get it, it and after you got it the first time, that one ain't coming back no more. So you never actually get high trying to, because you never reach that point. Now, the, when I started smoking weed again, it was like, and this is what I've been missing. I've <laughs> been out here doing this other thing, costing all that money, getting in all this trouble, all the down the way people look down on you. All of that when I could have smoked a joint, I had forgotten that. And so I'm happy I got my card <laughs> I go anywhere they serve it. What are the
1: chanted style of hooks that's so key to your music? We want the funk, all that stuff, that was ch- showing
2: Yeah, that's really it? Yeah. yeah. Run Joe. Billy's getting in and run Joe.
1: Run Joe, run as fast as you can. Run Joe. He his me hand.
2: Most of it the horn players did the singing. So they'd be up there singing, they usually sing in unison. And yeah, that was basically what that was. And that's like big band R and B, swing band, you know what Cal Basie and Duke Ellison was doing other versions. Lewis Jordan was doing the the street club version of
1: it. Well, how did you get the idea? to incorporate that into what you're doing.
2: I just try to remember all the things that happened my mother and them liked in the progression that I, paid. when I started thinking about records that hit, then I was, okay, I started saying cause that's what the rock bands was doing. They was going back, and they could, who was it? Eric Clapton told me about, uh, who was it? Robert Johnson. Or- Robert Johnson. Yeah. And I felt like shit. Cause I didn't know who Robert Johnson was. You know, and I'm supposed to know that. And once I realized that's what it was. The, the idea is that some white British dude knew yeah, Robert no Johnson about, you did. My music that. Then, yeah. uh, uh, and the whole history yeah. of it. When I realized that's what it takes, you have to learn the history of it so you can be proud of what it is. And then it started coming to you. And all, I found out mostly those British cats knew that. They knew all of that stuff. Where we was, you were hit one year, You've forgotten. It's the next record. Right. Well, So so you were
1: thinking, if these British guys are going back and looking at, you know, country blues, what in the past can I look at? And you thought, hey, Lewis Jordan, I can... Uh, yeah, and, yeah.
2: and, and the Do It was the Do It Funk. Don't do the same one they're doing, but do the other one Was that was the New Orleans stuff. Yeah. And I was right on that, too, because it really worked good with um, a, a funk band. You know, and it's even though it can be boring if you don't, you ain't into it at first, you know, because it's long grooves. But then we saw Philly Coute, yeah. you know, and they they were like James Brown, but they played all day. They get in one groove and people come, go home and eat, come back, and they groove on. So that was a possibility. I didn't feel too bad when we do one song, 30 minutes. right? You know, and people liked it. and we, That became part of our thing. But when you started getting hit records like We Want the Funk and stuff, you had to go back to the drum board, no, he's going to be five minutes, three minutes, and get out of here and get another song in. But when it started getting s- slow where we're not, like, pop all over the place, we go back to our old thing, jam, groove, blues, chants, and people really liked it, especially college kids. We always get a new set of fans every year when we play college. Freshmen be like, oh, this is Funkadelic? Oh, my God. Free Your Mind, Your Ass will follow. Right now, Maggie Rain, this Maggie Rain 50th anniversary. And Chili Peppers, they know more about Free Your Mind album than I do. We never played Free Your Mind, none of those songs on stage. We chanted some of the chants they'll play the whole record for you. <laughs> you know, and I felt like most of the punk rocks, that was their favorite. Yeah. And I did it for that reason, knowing that when we did it, this ain't gonna, it took, basically a joke it was all high as hell. But I knew that once we put that one in the thing, we didn't have to worry about falling no 45s no more. Once we did that one, we was out of the bag. We didn't have to do, they was glad when we did anything that came somewhere close to normal. You know, because we had done Free Your Mind, which worked for a few people, but those people gets bigger and bigger over the years. Like now, we do You and Your Folks.
0: It's
2: like a brand new release. What song is that? Right. All of the old Funkadelic, real hardcore songs are bubblegum now you I think were giving a speech at
1: like CMJ or something and that's when Anthony Kiedis came up to you and said like maybe you can come produce
2: uh, my little band I got. That was funny as hell you know it was, yeah it was right here in New York. Myself, Madonna, James Brown, I'm getting who else was all on the panel <laughs> and Anthony this, you know hey you, you produce records uh what it take for you to produce our band and that is it. I'm out! I'm living on a farm out in Brooklyn, Michigan. Blah, 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 blah. Come out there and talk to me. <laughs> a couple of weeks later, him, Flea, and his their manager showed up on the front porch. We come to talk about it. And we, we talked, and the next thing I know, they was out there for like three weeks to a month, stayed with me, and they were so crazy so wild. Th- I'm thinking, they too wild for me. I had to take them into Detroit and get them their own apartment. <laughs> Because the police come here, they're going to lock me up. They ain't going to lock them up. Well, they were, they were using his stuff at the time, right? Oh, we all, was, I was doing my thing and they yeah. were doing their thing. But see, I had been through that already. I had been through that back in Jersey at the barbershop, you know. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> I, that, that's one we missed. You know, we had people in the band that, you know, they got high, you know. But um, we had got out of that one. And so that scared the Anthony, they were like young and wild and energy,
1: you know. You had to revive one of them, didn't
2: you? Yeah, Anthony. <laughs> I didn't, the band did, they did. They did. I mean, I, that. we are so used to that, and I just told him, somebody's on his nuts, he'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that those are the, I think, one of them wrote a book, I think him or Flea wrote a book about it. They, they had fun there. I took him to see Aretha Franklin, you know, and uh, she was hot and Friend of mine had a big white rose, and we drove over to see them And they were so proud. They were one of the more eighteen at the time, and they were the ones that stayed like that with us. So when they first got their Grammy, they called us, and we did give it away. Yeah. Together, we just recorded that. Really? It's, it's gonna be on our next album. With them as guests? No, or just you guys. Just yeah. us, yeah. Oh, that's great.
1: I mean, we've we've talked about this before, but I, you know it, it's clear that you, from the Chili Peppers to other stuff, to, to you being influenced by Cream, that you don't necessarily see it as white musicians having appropriated, as they say, black music. You see it as more of a a, a back and forth. You've said,
2: yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean it's just musicians playing. You play all kind of music, we just did some Chinese songs, just not too long. The Atomic Dog? <laughs> you no, know, it's just musicians. And the thing is to do stuff that you hear from other people to get influenced by. That's how it's spread. That's how it's gonna be, you know, one world music eventually. You can see that in Stevie. You can hear when he went to another country and got a melody from some place that he liked. That's the way music is. You trade the melodies, you trade the customs and all that. You know, of course some people gonna get away with it better than other people's at any given time. So we take Pop music and do the same thing with it.
1: I mean, I guess if there were white musicians making money off the blues that the black musicians never got to make, though, that's kind of troubling.
2: Oh, that's, that's kind of troubling. You know, that's not the music, that's the business part of it that you got to straighten out. Somebody else got to take care of the musicians and go in and do it. And hey, ain't nobody going to turn nothing down. You know, a lot of them just said, you know, we shouldn't have it better than the people that made it. But, um, and musicians, they just be feeling the music and stuff. Like I say, the business got to, got to come up and get right. Right now, I'm getting ready, I'm working with um, uh, attorney Ben Crump. He's helping me with the uh, copyright recapture stuff. And the inf- we're trying to give the information to people, who copyright is coming back to them. We're gonna make an announcement that okay, you made this record 35 years ago. Your stuff is coming up for recapture. We're gonna start doing that on my birthday, we're gonna announce that as our foundation to help people to get their copyrights back. So it can be a more equitable thing for people that write you know, R&B music or any music. I mean, cause it's all the same when you're down in the gutter now. It's just that <laughs> your privilege will get you there first if you're white. But in the beginning, you got a problem, period, if you're doing rock and roll and blues and stuff, you know. But um, the business, they're going to have to straighten that out in politics. And that's what we got. Like I say, Ben Crump is helping us do that.
1: Uh, before I let you go, tell me a little bit more about those albums he you recorded during the
2: pandemic. Reaching for Litness that's what it's called. Reaching for Litness. Reaching for Litness. Litness. And it's, I don't know, a lot of the, the, the kids, the grandkids and stuff, so they have a lot of influence on it. So you get a lot of the, the trap sounding music. You know, from land and stuff, but with the band playing it, you know. So it's got it's a it's it's brand it's brand new type of thing. But it's something that you would see funkadelic of parliament doing. We had a little bit of it on um, Medicaid fraud dog. Um, you get a lot of the, the stuff on that, that. It was leaning towards that. Now they got their whole fan club. And the kids using the back. I'm the band director now. Right and. We got some different folks on there that's, that's got a
1: lot of energy. It's going to be interesting. So reaching for litness, and then there's another album, isn't there? You said you, there's... The other
2: one is actually a live album, and part live and part um, studio, but it's a vinyl. All right. It's a vinyl for Medicaid fraud dogs. Psychotropic, and um, Mama Told Me, and a uh, another, I forget the other one, this studio, and then you got the whole Shake the Gate medley, pole Power, Meow Meow, and Get Low, and so it's actually a vinyl thing that's that's really interesting.
1: How do you want to be remembered? Have you thought about that? I don't give a
2: fuck. Really? <laughs> I mean, that's... I, right now, being you know, this age, you start thinking, okay, what is... I'm, I'm trying to get the copyrights back from my heirs. That's what I would like for it to be, to, after all of these music that we put out and all we went through, I got most of the rights back. Now it's about setting it up to where my heirs and in the inheritance is done legally, so no whole bunch of lawyers have to get involved And I got all my kids, you know, they sang with each other, The mothers and is friends with each other. So it's about getting all of that you know, to together. My wife is really good on that. So, it's the family thing and all the members of the band who had copyright for them to get their stuff back, and any anybody that sampled our stuff for them to get theirs back. So, like I said, Ben Crump, he's a frat brother too. So we working on that and gonna announce it pretty soon.
1: In all the years on stage, is there a, a peak moment or moments
2: that stand out? I don't let that happen because I'd meet you for another moment. I'm always trying to leave room. If I started getting satisfied with any given thing, you know, I'd go back and stop a long time ago. George Clinton,
1: thank you so much. What a pleasure. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much to George Clinton for sitting down with me for this interview. If you want to see a video version of that same interview, it's actually up on YouTube and beautifully shot. So that's worth checking out as well. But we'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume. And in the meantime, we are a podcast, of course. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That is always deeply appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week.